so what we're always looking to do is maximize the velocity of learning. And, you know, before you have anything, customer development interviews are usually the fastest thing you can do because you can have a conversation with someone in a half an hour. If you can find them right away, you can have, you know, five conversations in a day if you're able to have access to customers. Building something, even if you're very quick, is probably going to take several days. But there's definitely a point where you're going to learn faster from building or from putting up a landing page. And so it's really like what things will help you to learn the fastest. And one thing I would say is that... Hello everyone, welcome to Hashtag Startup Basics series in the Insights Alley podcast, where startup founders and teams can learn from proven founders and experts about product, growth, sales, strategy, and everything in between to make their own startup successful. I'm your host Arun Verma and let's get started. today's episode, we will talk to Cindy Alvarez. Cindy is an author and a principal group product manager at Microsoft. She is known as an expert in customer development, having written a book called Lean Customer Development. We will talk to her on why and how to do customer development interviews for your startup, for your idea, your product, your feature. So here is the episode. Hello, Cindy. Welcome to Insights Alley. And thanks a lot for taking out some time for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, Cindy, would you like to start with telling us your story in brief of your career and what have you been doing? Sure. So, I started out actually as a designer, a visual designer, and I I went into startups because that was the thing that was was there and and honestly the people who would hire me early days because I had a psychology degree and uh, taught myself how to make web pages and and that wasn't the most impressive resume for established companies. Um, and so I did visual design and then I kind of moved into interaction design and I joke that I kept moving kind of closer and closer to where decisions were being made because I was continually frustrated by designing things that were wrong. And that's kind of led me, that led me into product management and that led me specifically into customer development and the notion of like, why are we building something if we're not sure that it's something that actually makes someone's life better. Right, right. So uh, let's just get into today's topic. What is meant by customer development? And what is meant by customer development interviews in that? And why is it important? Sure. So customer development is the notion of building up your customer base in front of or in parallel with building your product. So, you know, in an old school waterfall model, you might do some market research, you might have some existing customers, but essentially you were building something and then at the end saying, here, you want this, right? And sometimes that worked out and many, many times it didn't. And that's just such a huge waste of money. And I think for a long time, it was just hard to get access to your real customer base. But once we had the internet and we had social media and we had so much online space, there's really no excuse for not figuring out first who might want this thing and then double checking to make sure they really do. So customer development interviews also is this is kind of a tool in your tool belt, right, for making products that solves people's problems. So uh, what's your take on how to balance customer development interviews and perhaps rapid and cheap testing, getting the version one out of in the hands of your customer, as you also mentioned. So like, obviously, it's just not an either this or that. So uh, how do you advise and think about making that balance uh, between the two? Sure. So what we're always looking to do is maximize the velocity of learning. 
And, you know, before you have anything, customer development interviews are usually the fastest thing you can do because you can have a conversation with someone in a half an hour. If you can find them right away, you can have, you know, five conversations in a day if you're able to have access to customers. Building something, even if you're very quick, is probably going to take several days. But there's definitely a point where you're going to learn faster from building or from putting up a landing page. And so it's really like what things will help you to learn the fastest. And one thing I would say is that building something tells you a lot of signal, but once people see a solution, they're very likely to form kind of a snap decision of either I want this or I don't want this. And so you don't always get as good a signal about what the problem is. So once you have a good sense of this is a problem that people have, then I always say whatever helps you learn fastest, alternate between methods. Right, that's a very good indicator that you need to learn fastest. Awesome. So uh, continuing on to the same line of thought, since by customer development interviews, uh, we are uh, trying to validate or invalidate our hypothesis about the problem about the customer. And right. And obviously, we are trying to assess the riskiest assumption. So Cindy, uh, like, how do you think about this? What does your process actually look like here? I mean, what the kind of documents would write about the hypothesis, assumption, all these things? Yeah, so... The kind of documents, it's really whatever will keep you focused on what you have to learn. I know a lot of folks that I work with at Microsoft will have these Excel spreadsheets where they've got all of their assumptions written down and they're sort of carefully mapping out whether or not they've validated them and how many interviews they've done. And if that works, great. I've seen a lot of teams who use that really well. I tend to have something like a running Word doc or Google doc where I'll jot down a bunch of things that I think I know and then revisit that. And then after a few interviews say, is that actually true? Uh, I don't really feel confident about that anymore. And one thing that's really been helpful for me in a larger company, and then previously when I was at Kiss Metrics, which was an all virtual company, we had to do a lot of you know, overhead communication. Whenever you're virtual, you have to do a lot of extra communication, which I actually thought was very helpful because it meant that I had this forcing function to write up what I'd learned. So it wasn't just that I could come back to my desk and kind of casually talk about my to my coworkers about what I've learned, but I would actually have to document, okay, I did 10 interviews. These are the things I kept hearing. This is a pattern I've seen. This is a question I want to ask next. And that was really useful for my coworkers, but was even more useful for me. Right, right. That makes sense. And obviously, not just validating your hypothesis, like it could also help us in kind of identifying and surface completely new and bigger problems if we're just talking to customers and see what are the patterns that we are seeing. Yeah, I often recommend that people recommend that people write down what surprised them or something that they weren't expecting to hear. Because I often find if you're working in a certain area, there'll be something that kind of sticks out and it's like, this doesn't quite fit, but it's interesting. And I'm just going to put it in my notes. And you'll see that emerging over time a lot of times. And you then you go back and you look at three months worth of notes. You're like, oh, at first I only heard this once and now I'm hearing it regularly. Right. So do you still have some sort of a framework that, okay, this is sort of a hypothesis that I'm going to look for overall after doing, let's say, 30 interviews. And then we'll see, okay, if this is working or not working, like a hypothesis, assumption, problem. How do you make that framework? In the beginning, I try and start with a pretty tight framework of, I believe this kind of customer needs to solve this kind of problem, which is blocking them from doing this thing or which would unlock this capability. And once you have validated that, I tend to not write as detailed a hypotheses, but rather assumptions, which don't necessarily have a customer and a problem and a payoff. 
So I might say something like, you know, managers, we have validated that managers have a hard time onboarding their new employees because we've heard a bunch of people say that and we know what the pain points are. And I might make some assumptions like, I assume they would be willing to have employees spend, you know, six hours in the first week on training, or I assume that their companies have budgets and then it's just a matter of going to figure that out, which might be an interview and might not. Do you think uh, people fall into this uh, paralysis analysis thing by just crafting all these hypotheses and not actually, you know, being able to deduce things from actual interviews? Yes, um, <laughs> it's really easy to. And I think the best thing to do for that is to is to have someone there to kind of be your gut check. So a person who is not working in this direct space will be it'll be so obvious to them that you are just spinning your wheels. And so in a small company, that can be tough because you don't have formalized product review process a lot of times. And in fact, even in my team in Microsoft, we didn't have one until recently. And it was really frustrating. Um, so in that context, I really recommend seeking out peers, you know, seek out other founders and just do quick, short pitches. And the point is just because that other person will say, I don't understand why you're continuing to, you know, iterate on this little thing, just build something already. Right. That's a very, very valid point. So Cindy, let's say when we reach out to these people, let's say they could be either your existing customers, users, or, you know, new people that you think might have this problem or even just your leads or users of your product. So what to exactly ask them in the, like when you pitch to them, with what sort of messaging? Because, you know, uh, many people might uh, not know what exactly is a customer development interview when you're reaching out to them and everybody's time is also valuable. So and if you just keep being vague that I just want to talk to you, that they, they might think, yeah, this person is just wasting my time or what exactly. So like, how do you craft that pitch? that I want to talk to you and what exactly to say and explain them uh, and ask for their time. Sure. So I like to open it up by being specific on why do I want to talk to you? And that could be you because you're someone that a friend referred specifically or you because you have a certain job title or you've been working in an area for 15 years or you have some kind of concern like, you know, a health problem or an educational need or something like that. But I want to make it clear that I'm not spamming blindly that I, there's some reason why you are actually especially qualified. I want to make it clear that I'm not selling anything because no one wants to talk to salespeople in general. And I want to talk about a little bit about the space that gives people either hope that a problem that they they have might be solved or in some cases really ties to their identity. Uh, and I'll give you an example of a kind of before and after is someone emailed me once and said, look, I'm trying to do customer development interviews. I have this product. It's related to the music industry and something about concert going. And they're like, here's my pitch. No one is responding. And I read it. It was essentially said, I'd like to talk to you because I want to talk to people who love music to learn more, blah, blah, blah. And I said, the thing is, Everyone loves music. I mean, I mean, right? Who doesn't like music? I said, but it sounds like what you want are people who really, really like music. And how would you define that? And the person thought about it a little bit, you know, exchanged emails and was like, well, you know, let's say someone who had been to 10 live music events in the past six months. And I said, well, that's a really good qualifier. If I'm the kind of person who goes to that many live music shows, that's a part of my identity. I'm probably pride myself on being a person who seeks out good live music. And so if you say, I'm working, I want to learn more about music. I'm really looking for people like you who've gone to, you know, 10 or more music shows in the past six months because you have a unique perspective. If I read that, I'd be like, I do. I want to talk to you. 
And so that ties into ego and, you know, humans really run on ego. And if you get that, then, then people are curious. Right, right. So uh, do you think, uh, would you advise, uh, should we go for giving some sort of incentive for them giving us their time, gift coupon or anything? Like, is that a good idea or not? Like how to know this? Uh, how do you incentivize them for their time? Sure. So for incentives, I think you have to have an incentive. And sometimes it's that ego incentive. It's the case of that music fan. You don't need to give that person a gift card. They are just so psyched to be recognized as a music hardcore fan that they will talk to you. And often the same thing for some kind of really deep problem. If you're looking to you know, solve something around like elder care or children with autism or you know, something like that, where this is such a problem that just talking to someone who might solve it is a huge, it's like a benefit to me. I get to vent, I get to be heard, and that's, that's a reward. In, in the case, the, the funnier case is uh, in the case of something like enterprise software, which you think of as being very boring and, and often is, and, and I've worked in enterprise software my whole career, so I'm not making fun of anyone here. Um, the folks who are very good at specific work tasks often don't get praised for that. You know, if you're great at running mailing list software, no one ever gives you kudos for that. But if you don't have that, then then you do. Sorry. Like if you don't have that sense of like, ooh, I feel more valued. And this is a lot of consumer products, honestly, a lot of entertainment products. If there's not a reason why someone is really eager to talk to you, then yes, that you you will often need an incentive. And you know, now that I am at Microsoft, for a lot of our research, we do use incentives because people aren't necessarily excited to talk about, you know, collaborating in Word or collaborating in, you know, Visual Studio. Uh, once we get them on the phone, they're generally very excited, but we need that little nudge. Right. That that makes sense. A lot of sense. So uh, let's say we are going to do our customer development interview, right? Now we are in the moment just before the interview with a person, let's say. Now, what are the things to prepare before you jump into an interview with a person? Like what's your process like pre-interview preparation and checklists of sort? Sure. So I think about what do I most want to know about this person? If it's someone in a work context where I can look them up on LinkedIn or try and get a sense of a little bit about where they've worked and what their background might be, I'll do that. Um, and mostly just, yeah, try and think about what I might want to learn. And then when I when I get on, I start with a very general question. And I always have the sense of I'm going to kind of let this go where the customer wants to lead me. Right. Do you prefer kind of a script of all the questions or like sort of topics that you want to touch upon? Or is this not the way that you go? Like, uh, how, how, since you have done so many interviews, like what your have uh, experience been? For me at this point, I almost never do a script. If I'm doing a customer development interview for someone else, like helping out another team, then I'll have one just to make sure I get the details. For myself, I don't. Uh, for folks who are less experienced with this, who are maybe getting started, I generally recommend a script, but a very lightweight one. I like five questions. And I, and I always say, you're going to write five questions. You might only ask one of them. I just want to make sure that you're not going to get, you know, ask one and then blank and feel really awkward. But uh, whenever people start, you know, well, are these the right five questions? You know, I'll kind of look at them and say, you know, are they leading questions? Are they yes, no questions? If not, then you're good. Ask them. Are there any questions which is that you could perhaps ask beforehand before the interview via in email or a short form because basically to save time which are you know just uh, objective questions about the customer their demographics and all that i almost never ask about demographics because it doesn't matter a lot of the time i really take the view that it's what someone is doing and if something about their demographics is critical that will come out in the interview. If it's really important that this person lives in this country or, you know, is this age or is this nationality, that will 
come out in their interview. And if it doesn't, then it wasn't actually. Yeah. And if you're talking about the context around the problem, then it would eventually come out if it, it matters. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. What would you say the pros and cons of different types of like face-to-face interviews or an audio call or a video call? Like, what do you prefer and what do you sort of see the pros and cons of each? Sure. I actually prefer voice, no video. And the reason is that you don't have to mess with things. Um, I find as as much as we've been working on video calling in the tech space for decades, it's not great yet. And especially if you are doing an interview with someone who is not especially tech savvy, then that tends to make people feel nervous. It makes them feel self-conscious that they couldn't figure out how to get the video working. If I'm talking to other tech people, we all know, you know, we all know to blame the technology. But if I'm talking to someone who's not a developer or a product manager, they will apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't get the video working. I can't figure this out. Oh, it's confusing. And then they will, they're already coming to the interview feeling kind of dumb at that point. It's not their fault, but it makes for a worse interview. And so phone, you can just call people. I think just audio conversation lower the guard of each of the participant as well. Absolutely. Because a lot of times we're looking for problems. We're looking at something where this person is not as competent as they want to be. And it's a lot harder to admit that when you're looking at someone. Yeah. And even like in a video, I'll see, oh, I have to get the background right. I have to light and get all these things. And if in in an audio interview, just talking and it's like laid back, I can be in any clothes I want, all these things. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, uh, so let's assume like now the interview is live, right? So yeah, uh, in the starting, like how do you set up the expectations correctly with the customers and sort of uh, talking about the same thing? How do you make the customer feel comfortable, build a rapport with them so that, you know, they feel comfortable in sharing uh, freely with you? There's a couple of key phrases I always try and use, which is, you know, I'm just trying to learn. Obviously, I could look at something like market research, but what I find really useful is specific individuals' experiences. So I don't want to hear about things that, you know, other people do. If it's something that you do, that's going to be really interesting to me. Nothing you say is going to be boring. Everyone I talk to has at least one process that they're a little bit embarrassed about, and that's reality. I mean, and I'll, I'll sprinkle those in a lot. It's just this notion of, yeah, there's a way that we should do it, and none of us actually do it the ideal way. And what I want to know is what actually happens. Could you explain more on that? What do you mean by this? Sure. So I think every time I talk to someone about, you know, say any enterprise process or things like getting their kids ready for school in the morning, There's always this kind of ideal path. Like it would be great if I woke up at 6.30 and the kids' clothes were already laid out and they got up and they immediately brushed their teeth and got dressed and ate their breakfast and, you know, packed up their backpacks without being asked. That is not the reality. And it is never going to be, in my household at least. Um, (laughs) But if I tell you what actually happens, then you can spot, you know, you as the potential solution provider can see here are spots where we could help. Like... Here is a product where, you know, having a checklist so the kids could mark off themselves what they need to do or whatever the situation is. Or, you know, people who use something, some kind of enterprise software and there's a path for doing it in the tool, but then they will also have post-it notes stuck to their monitor or they'll have a whiteboard where they manually check off that they've done certain processes. Right. And understanding that is what allows you to say, like, oh, as a competitor tool, we could actually make it better by taking out that manual step or taking out that step that's causing a lot of errors. Right. So, uh, Cindy, uh, let's get uh, to the, the most important part. Like, what 
sort of question that you mentioned, maybe five questions, or you said you don't have a question. So like, what is the process, how to conduct this interview, what to ask specifically, and how to then go ahead and talk to that person? What's your process like and how to do that? Sure thing. Uh, when I said I don't have a script, that means I don't have a written one. I actually have the one that's in my head all the time, which is, you know, it goes something like, hi, Arun. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. As we discussed, uh, I'm working on a project where I'm trying to learn more about how developers choose tools. And as you've been a software developer for 15 years, I'm sure you've got a ton of experience here. I've just got a couple quick questions. Uh, nothing you tell me will be boring. It's all about your personal experience. Uh, before we get started, do you have any questions for me? And some variant of that is my intro all the time. And sometimes people will have a couple of questions. The, the uh, more likely people are to, uh, sorry, if someone works in security, they're very likely to ask, what are you going to do with this information? And then I will, you know, and then I'll tell them, it, you know, it will be anonymized. It's only going to go for my team, et cetera. Most people don't have questions, but they like that they could ask a question. Sometimes people will ask, do you have a product right now? And that's a great time to reinforce, no, this is learning. And then I'll start off by saying something like, you know, could you walk me through how you do this today? You know, walk me through the last time you or your team evaluated a new software development tool or framework. And then I pause and people will answer and they usually give a really short answer. And so I'll just kind of remain silent, you know, taking notes. And they'll typically say, oh, did you want more detail? And I'll say, yeah, actually, anything you could tell me would be great. And that sets the tone for them to realize, oh, you don't, she doesn't want one sentence answers. She actually wants the whole boring thing, which again, is not boring to me. And then someone will walk through, well, here's what we did. Here's how we researched. Then we prototyped and, you know, and then we tried it out and we, we had a brown bag about how to use it or whatever the answer is. Usually along that process, there will be things where I want to poke in more about, oh, it sounds like it took a long time for that to get approved. Could you tell me more about that? Or things like that. If there's not really kind of a problem space, now I have a general sense of, of what they did. I might ask for that detail. I might say things like, how long did that take? Or who was involved? Or what prompted you to look for a new tool in the first place? And, and you'll notice those are all, you know, how, when, what, why type questions. I try and avoid yes, no questions as much as possible because you get a short answer and it's not usually a very interesting answer. And it also has, there's a lot of bias involved in yes, no, because usually for a question with yes, no, one of those answers feels like the right answer. You know, like, do you exercise regularly? Either yes. yes or no. Right, right, right. You know, everyone wants to say yes to that. And that might not be the truth. And if you were actually working on a fitness pro program or a product, you would want to know who doesn't exercise regularly but wants to, because that's exactly the space you want to solve for. So if you were to say something like, in the past week, how often did you exercise? How happy were you with that? You'd get a very more, much more revealing answer. Right. So sometimes what happens, so I uh, obviously asking open-ended question is very important, which is uh, questions which are not binary. So uh, sometimes like the customer would ask, hey, can you be more specific? Like what to do in that scenario when they will ask you only, hey, can you be more specific about if I'm asking very open-ended question? So I try and scope it to maybe one click above where I want to get to. So if what I want to know is, for example, you know, how the documentation impacts someone's decision to try out a tool. I'm not going to ask about how do you read documentation, but I will ask about, tell me about the last specific time that you chose a tool. And if they say, could you be more specific? Then I will often bring in kind of a fictional other people 
which is sometimes an actual customer. I might say, you know, for example, I talked to someone last week who told me about how their team decided to move to React Native and what that process looked like. You know, and, and, and it will be something analogous. And sometimes I'll pick something outside of the subject area, but just to give someone a, an idea of scope. Oh, okay. You know, a development framework, that's a thing that I've done, or that's a thing that I haven't done. And then often they will say something like, well, we don't have something like that, but we just, we just moved to Slack. Does that count? And I'll be like, sure, tell me about that. And even if it's not a perfect example, usually at that point, I'm like, I will use that as a jumping off point. Makes sense. So you uh, just now a little previously mentioned that you should sort of uh, ask, like, tell me a last time this happened. So I guess this is sort of a mantra that you should never ask hypothetical questions. So I, I just wanted to right. ask you, like, what's the core principle behind that often for not asking hypothetical questions and trying to poach into asking them, can you recall an instance or an ex past experience or a past memory? I'm curious to know what's the reason behind this. Sure. So when you ask about the present or the future, humans are just really bad at predicting this. So if you ask about the present, people tend to give you an idealized version. If you ask about the future, they give an even more idealized version. Uh, and so now you're basing your potential business off something that isn't really real. So, for example, if you ask someone about how they do you know, automated testing or how they do expense management, they'll give you this very glowing view of, oh, well, every week we do this and then all the receipts are reconciled. But what really happened last time? And, and sometimes if someone gives me a very glowing last time, then I'll say, that sounds like it went pretty smoothly. I'm curious, in the past six months, could you tell me about a time that wasn't this smooth? And then I might try and figure out, is that the more accurate view? And sometimes it's not. Sometimes people will say, well, there was one time that something really awful happened. And then I'll say, how typical was that? And they'll say, actually, that's the only time we've really had an experience like that. And that may invalidate a hypothesis. You know, I may have thought this happens all the time. And it turns out that for at least this customer, it's happened exactly once. And so it's not a big burning problem for them to solve. Right. Sometimes what happens is since we all have an hypothesis assumptions in our head, so we try to kind of lead the customer into a certain direction. So like uh, why and how to not do that, not lead the customer into a certain direction. That's where that's where saying tell me about how you do this is helpful because you may have a belief that people have a specific problem. You may believe that, uh, you know, people have a hard time getting their grocery shopping done. And so they, they need some kind of service to help. And if you were to say, tell me about the troubles you have with grocery shopping, that, that immediately scopes it to troubles. And so then I'm going to think, okay, I want to be a helpful interviewee. So I'm going to specifically think about the troubles I have. And that's not actually, maybe that's very, very low on my priority list. So I might spend five minutes telling you about troubles. But then what you don't know is that actually, if you could solve anything in my life, it would be help finding a babysitter or making my commute less hairy or something like that. Um, so saying something like, how do you run your household or how do you make sure your team's work gets done kind of scopes it down. And then I'm going to talk about things and, and maybe this problem doesn't come up. And if really, if you're asking me about something about how do you make sure your team's work gets done and you think that there's going to be a specific problem around, I don't know, maintaining specs, but I don't mention that, then it's probably not a problem. And to be sure, you could say something like, I noticed in your description, you didn't mention uh, keeping specs updated. Could you talk a little bit about that? And if it's not a problem, I'm probably going to say, uh, well, I guess I guess we do it. Now, you know, I'm, I'm going to have right. a very vague answer like that. 
if it is a problem, you're going to know because I'm going to say, oh, that I didn't even want to go into that. That's when, you know, you kind of struck gold and you're like, OK, well, tell me about that. Tell me more about that. Why is that a problem? You know, what could you be doing instead? What errors arise? Yeah, keep just keep on asking why to dig deeper. Why, why, why multiple layers? Exactly. Exactly. Someone once got on an interview with me. I love taking customer development interviews anyways, because I'm like, oh, this is what the other side is like. But this person asked me a lot of questions around um, finding childcare for days when, you know, you wake up in the morning and your kid is sick and basically went right into what are the problems with that. And I started talking about how logistically it is really difficult. Like if I woke up in the morning and one of my kids had a fever, it's almost impossible to get care for that day. And I went, kind of went on and on. And then towards the end, I realized, because because I do this, I was like, but wait, I was like, I actually have a lot of flexibility to work from home. So what really happens is that if one of the kids wakes up sick, I kind of groan. And then my husband and I compare calendars and we both have pretty flexible schedules. So whoever has the fewest meetings just works from home. So it's not a burning problem. It's sure it's frustrating, but you know, one, one winter, it seemed like everyone was sick for two weeks straight and we all just worked from home and it was fine. Right. You touched a very important point, Cindy. So uh, as you said, uh, we are just tiptoeing around the problem or the circumstances or, you know, the uh, typical workday or a scenario for that uh, customer. Now you ask, you're asking sort of questions. When did this happen? This happened. And they said out that problem that you're just trying to solve. Now, how do we gauge the importance of that problem? Like, uh, how do we understand that if this is something very important problem or if it's just a meh problem or is is it like a very frequent problem? How do you do that? So as far as how big a problem, uh, we can just ask. So if someone says, you know, it says, okay, it sounds like you work from home when your kids are sick. You know, how big of an inconvenience is that? And I would say what I just said, like, well, it's inconvenient, but, you know, it's fine. Versus something like, uh, you know, if I have a piece of software that generates a lot of errors and I have to clean them up and you say, how big a problem is that? I might say, oh, I have to spend four hours at least every week doing this. And it's time that could be spent on something much more valuable. And, you know, it's preventing me from blah, blah, blah. Like, I will have a story. If I just kind of shrug, then it's not that big a deal. Right. See, in all, all the insights that you told, uh, it's just like a recurring theme that it's all you want to get and pull out stories from people, right? I'm just curious to understand like how to get story out of your interview and why is that important in the first place like why is that a better indicator of understanding their problem and what's the underlying principle here essentially people prioritize what's important to them if they're telling the story they'll center themselves you know they're the hero of the story and so what's ever most important is what will come up whereas if you're saying do you do this how often do you do you know this very specific thing i will answer your questions is humans just, that's how what we do. We try and be polite. And if you ask a specific question, I will answer it. If you ask an open-ended question, I will tell you what my take on it is, what's important to me. Right. That makes sense. And now you are kind of wrapping the interview up. So uh, like, do you tell them about the product? Like, how's your experience been? What to do and what not to do? Do you tell about the solution that you're trying to build or exactly product? Or do you even showcase the product to them? So essentially, I really want to understand that problem space first. And so I rarely talk about anything in the solution area on an initial interview. 
Now, there's an exception if you're talking to someone that's going to be really hard to get back in touch with, and especially folks who are maybe talking to senior executives within companies, you're not going to get it back on the phone with this person. And so that's where I might split the interview. And once I kind of have the problem space, I might repeat back to them, you know, thank you so much. It sounds like the problems you're really looking to solve are X and Y and Z, and that these are the workarounds you're currently using, and that if you were able to solve it, this is the benefit you'd get. Is that accurate? And then I allow them to correct. And so now I kind of know where they are. And then I say, you know, I'd love to show you a little bit of what we've been working on or tell you where our thinking is now and get your feedback on that. <clears throat> and at that point, I can do it. I never want to lead with a solution because then all the feedback is going to be tailored around whether or not that solution is right. And it's not going to tell me why it's right or what the problem is. But I tend to make that pretty, pretty light because the other thing that's a really good tell is if I say, thank you so much, I've learned so much, you know, we're going to keep working on this space. Could I call you back when I've got something to show you? And if someone says yes, that's a really strong indicator that yes, they really do want this. They are interested. If someone politely says, well, I'm really busy, then even if they were effusive during the call, oh, it sounds like a great solution. If they don't want to talk to you again, they were just being polite. Right. What other tells that you have seen in people when trying to understand if this is a problem that, you know, is it important to them or their, their willingness to pay? One is, is there a workaround they're using today? Because if there's no workaround, it's not really a problem. And that could be, you might have to ask in several ways to figure this out because a workaround doesn't necessarily mean using a competitor product. A lot of times the current workaround is, you know, sending emails to myself or, you know, having a sticky note or writing things on a whiteboard, or I have a calendar app on my phone that I put these things in. But if there is not a workaround today, you know, it could be hiring a vendor too. It could have, take a lot of forms. If you don't have a workaround today, then that means you haven't invested any effort in solving it. And then it's not really a problem. It might be later. You might want it to be a problem, you know, like the person who wants to get in shape, but has made no effort to do so. Like it's free to walk around the block. If you haven't tried walking around the block a few times, you're not actually ready to get in shape. You might be later, but you're not now. Right, right. That's a very good example because if you ask that person like, hey, have you tried solving this problem? Why or why not? Then you'll get the exact answer if that problem is indeed important to them or not, right? That's right. That's right. And in some cases, you can also look for an analog, like how have they done something in the past? Like in the past, did they have a problem that they spent money to solve? Right, right. Awesome. So Cindy, when we are trying to extract stories, because that's the way we tell our emotions and uh, we get open. So sometimes what happens is the customer would wander off to completely, you know, non-useful directions <laughs> and like completely oh, yes. off topic. Right. So now the, 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 the dilemma here is like, but sometimes those rambles and those directions might generate some very best stories and best nuggets also. So uh, like, how do you perhaps identify like, is this really, is that person really onto something or, you know, do you need to bring them back? And if yes, like, how do you bring them back? If the person is going off on a tangent and they're really excited about it, I will let them go for a bit and I'll take notes. And that's always the thing where I kind of set it aside, like, you know, this person might be an outlier, but if I start hearing someone else go down this tangent, then I know that there's, I'm onto something there. After a few minutes, I will generally say, you know, thank you so much. Wow. It sounds like this is a big problem space for you. Um, I'd actually love to hear more about it another time. Um, and also right now there's a couple more questions I have and, you know, and I want to be respectful of your time. So could I ask you these other questions? 
And then you'll kind of see like if your follow-up questions they really lose enthusiasm for, that tells you like this, you know, that tangent, that's what this person cared about. They're probably not your target customer for what you're doing today. They might be a target customer for something in the future or something that a friend of yours is working on. Or like now that I'm inside Microsoft, sometimes I will hear these tangents and be like, this has no relevance to me, but I do know a PM who's working in this space and I'm just going to send them my notes and say, by the way, <laughs> this is relevant to you. I thought you'd want to hear this story. Right, right. That makes sense. So, uh, Cindy, what do you think is a good length for a customer development interview? I think uh, like a better question is would be like, what are the indicators to understand, you know, that now we should wrap this up? It's either I have extracted as much as I can or, you know, it's not working out. Sure. So I always ask for 20 minutes. And that's a little bit of a hack because 20 minutes feels like it's not even a half an hour. And so it feels like a manageable amount of time. At the 30 minute mark, if it's still going as we approach it, I will tell people that like, hey, this is really useful. I'm enjoying this very much. You know, I do notice that we're, we're at 30 minutes and I want to make sure there's not something on your calendar coming up. And if the person says, oh, I have to go, then I'll say, great. I'd really love to talk to you another time. Can I do that? You know, I'll quickly extract that yes and then I'll make a note that I should talk to that person again. Sometimes people will say, no, I don't have anything scheduled, let's keep going. At that point, even if it's the best conversation ever, 40 minutes is kind of my cutoff of, I don't wanna burn this person out. Essentially, even if they're really enjoying it, I don't want them to get off the phone and then be like, oh, that was a waste of time. Now I'm kind of annoyed in retrospect at Cindy. Um, so that's definitely where I'd push to, let's talk another time. Now on the other end, sometimes you get, interviews that just are not going anywhere. And some people need time to warm up and some just are not going to be a good interview. And so I feel like, you know, five minutes is really the space of you should, you should have gotten somewhere by now. You, you try asking a few questions, you keep getting these really short answers. Then I might kind of say, Hey, you know, it sounds like this is something that's maybe not the, you know, the highest highest uh, priority for you. Is that right? And that is a little bit leading, but I want to give them an out at this time to be like, yeah, I don't really care about this space. And if they say, no, actually, this is really important. I'll be like, well, you know, tell me more about what is important to you or what is the biggest pain point you're seeing in this space? And kind of, you know, ask an even more open-ended question. There'll also be people who just maybe they're talking, but all their answers are really, oh yeah, we do that. Oh, I don't know. It's not really a problem. That's where, you know, it, it, if you're getting at five minutes, you're trying to probe more and you're still getting these really like, yeah, I don't know, or I don't want to talk about that. You know, occasionally you get people who are kind of annoyed. I'll say, well, you know what? Thank you so much for talking to me. I don't want to take up more of your time. I want to be respectful of your time. So this has been useful. Uh, before we go, do you have any questions for me? And usually they'll say no. And then, you know, you just end it and call that one a, a not great interview. Right, right. That makes sense. Cindy, what are the biggest mistakes uh, that you have done in doing these interviews? And perhaps what have you seen uh, other people's do? What are the, you know, ways to completely ruin uh, such an interview? <laughs> arguing with people. If there's one thing, oh my goodness, the one thing, arguing or being defensive. It just, and if you are working in an area that you feel very passionately about and the person on the other side says something that you disagree with very strongly, yes, it will feel like a personal insult. You know, if you're working on your product and someone is like, oh, that product is terrible. That's the worst thing. Like, oh my goodness, you will so want to say, well, why is it bad? Well, are you using it right? Did you read the documentation? It's like, it's just that bubbles up in you. And most people don't say anything that obvious, but it'll just be a little bit of a tone of like, 
oh, I'm, I'd like to hear why you why you feel that way. Or I, you know, I haven't heard this before. And people can tell that defensiveness and it just shuts them down and it makes them not like the process. And I find that, you know, sort of pretending like it's not your space, you know, as though you were a consultant is it's it's you can I try and put myself in that mindset of whatever they say. I don't take it personally. So if someone says, yeah, I used to use that product, but I stopped because it was terrible. I'd be like, oh, OK, um, what kinds of things were going wrong? Oh, wow, that really does sound awful. You know, could you talk more about when that happened? Oh, yeah, no, I completely understand. It just it's helpful for me to know the details because we definitely want to make sure that you know, going forward, other people don't have this kind of experience and just being very, and occasionally I'll even say, you know, I'm a researcher working with this project, so I didn't build it. And if it's not a customer, like it's okay to, that's a little white lie. If that makes someone feel better, then great. And like in the very earliest days when I did straight up usability testing, I always told people that I had not designed the product that I had in fact just designed because I, I wanted them to feel like if they hated it, I wanted them to tell me that straight up with no sugar coating. And sometimes it happened. Sometimes I'd say, yeah, I didn't design this. I'm just testing it. And people would be like, oh, I'm so glad because it's awful. And it's like, you feel terrible, but like, I, I would want to know that. It's like, oh, well, you know, what's the, what problems are you having? Tell me about it. And that's really useful information. And when I was able to get that out of usability testing, there were times when we could make some small changes and really change how people saw something. So they're just like, no arguing, no defensiveness. That's hands down the biggest mistake right and basically you have to be very empathetic towards their feelings that's right like no one's ever been talked out of a feeling so you might disagree you might think they shouldn't feel that way but they do and those emotions also are a very good tell also about the problem and how they're feeling about that product or the problem absolutely and we buy things we use things to manage emotions and there's a ton of research around this you know it's have been done both in academia and industries like people want to feel in control they want to feel smart they want to feel capable and they don't like things that make them feel uneasy or make them feel dumb and we'll do all kinds of things we'll avoid products where you know the instructions are ambiguous so we make mistakes a lot. You know, we're not going to go to, you know, a gym where it seems like everyone is impossibly fit and in shape because that makes us feel bad. You know, we don't want to go to stores where, where, you know, we accidentally knock over merchandise because the, the, you know, the aisles are very narrow. It's like we do all kinds of things and we don't even realize it. Right, right. So after perhaps mistakes, like what are the different biases that people have as an interviewer? Like what are the biases that come in your way while interviewing your customers and how to get off of those biases, those traps? Like any examples you could recall? I mean, the classic is confirmation bias. If you believe something, you're going to look for evidence that supports your belief. Or you're going to ask questions in a way that don't really give someone the opportunity to dispel your belief. You know, like the person saying, tell me about the problems with finding childcare when your kid is sick. That was not asked in a way that allowed me to say, actually, it's not really that big a deal. And so, you know, if you say, tell me about, you know, you can get that. Or you can even, if you feel like maybe you have been leading the witness and that happens often, you can try asking questions that kind of are the reverse you know, and this is hard to construct on the fly, but to say, you know, I know this is such and such is a big frustration and this is where you can, you, you can lead a little bit in the opposite direction. So let's say you feel like, oh, I think I just kind of convinced this person to tell me they have this problem. You might say something like, you know, the other thing is I've talked to a lot of other customers who say that, yes, that is frustrating, but actually it's very low on their priority list. I'm wondering, you know, 
how would you feel along those lines? And the person might, might that gives them that out to say, oh, I, you know, yeah, I did just complain about this, but now that you mention it, I probably wouldn't solve, I probably wouldn't pay money to solve it. Right. That's, this willingness to pay, I guess this is very important because as you mentioned, you know, if you are talking, tiptoeing around a problem and you might lead uh, that customer onto your problem but that might be the 10th problem that they might have in that whole exactly. list right so that yeah. makes sense that makes sense so anything else we missed in how to do this interview then we'll see what to do post interview yeah uh, the last thing the final question that i always ask which you know seems ridiculous and i always ask it and it's gotten me great insights is at the end after you've built up rapport after they've talked i always say okay one last question if you could wave a magic wand and change anything doesn't have to be possible to make this problem easier. What would you change or what would you do? And that breaks people out of the mode of possible. Because a lot of times when they're talking about problems, they're thinking about what improvements do I know could be made that, you know, in my sphere of the universe, like I know that this is technically possible or, you know, obeys the laws of physics possible. And sometimes I just want people to blurt out something ridiculous because that tells me more about the problem space. And so often I have had a great interview and then I ask that question and someone just says something like, oh, I just wish I could fly above the traffic and not have to deal with it. And, and that's like, no, I can't actually create that. But it's really powerful that shows me like, okay, traffic really is a big stressor for this person. Or someone might say, I just wish that all these products could do this and this and this and magically know. And in some cases I might think, huh, that's that's actually not that hard, a natural language processing problem. Like that's probably possible. So I always ask that. That's magic one question. Somewhat similar to this, I remember. So I was listening to, I think, Masters of Scale, Reed Hoffman and Brian Chesky's conversation. And they were telling that Airbnb people would ask the guests, like, what would a seven star experience look like for you? Okay, then what would a 10 star experience would look like mm -hmm. for you? Then what would a 12 star experience would look like for you? So obviously the 12 stars would be something out of this world. But then suddenly your five and seven star experience would not seem implausible for these uh, people so that, that's somewhat similar yeah. but uh, interesting okay Cindy so like now we have let's say uh, completed the interview so now interview is over so what to do immediately like by the way I think you should record also with the permission of, of the interviewee right do you record I actually don't so most of the time what I prefer to do is to have a note taker and this serves a couple of purposes one is that even if you're a small company, you all need to you all need to learn about customers. And this is a good way to bring in, say, engineers or other folks who might not ever want to conduct interviews but still need these insights. It also is a good way to train up other people because once you've been a note taker a few times, you kind of feel like you can run the interview. And it allows me to focus on talking without taking notes. The reason I don't record is because then people realize that they've been recorded and there are a lot of people for whom then they feel a little bit self-conscious because you have to, you have to ask it. Yeah. And then if, again, again, working in enterprise, I have to make sure that everything is data compliant. If I'm recording, I can't store those recordings and then I have to think about getting rid of them. I'm never, I never want to listen to the begin, but I also don't necessarily want to use a transcription service unless it's an internal tool. So I just, 
I don't and I have a note taker. Right, right. And going back to that point that people might have their guards up, rail guards up that, oh, this is being recorded. So I have to be a certain way. To- yes. And especially if you're talking to people in competitive spaces. Right, exactly. Uh, so wh- how do you, what's your uh, note making process like? And h- how do you perhaps process those notes just after the interview? So immediately after the interview, I'll kind of read them over and usually just make little, you know, asterisks or exclamation points by things that stood out to me or bold them, you know, you know, so I'll have the raw notes and they're, they're messy. And I'll just kind of like, these are the things that seem most important. And, you know, in an ideal world, I would write more than that in the actual world. No, I pretty much just say, okay, these are the things that really stood out to me. And then I set them aside and then I, you know, you know, some time passes, then I do the next interview. Every every week or every five interviews or kind of at a point where I've heard several points of view, then I will look at the raw notes from all of them. And I'll look at all the places where I've bolded or put asterisks and kind of said, what are the patterns? And I, you know, I reread the notes to make sure that the patterns are what I think they are, because it's very easy, again, in the bias space. If you have one really enthusiastic person who's like, this is a giant problem. Oh my gosh, I would pay any amount of money to solve it. And then everyone else was like, oh yeah, that is a problem. You know, your brain is going to average that to everyone thinks this is a huge problem. But if you actually look at the notes, you're like, no, I had one super enthusiastic guy. And then four, like, maybe, yeah people and I should treat those as different. And then I summarize, which is basically, hey, I started this set of interviews believing these things and I feel confident that I have validated these things. I don't feel confident yet about this. I feel like we've definitely invalidated this. And then I think about, do I need to do this? Do I need to keep doing the same kind of interview with asking the same general set of questions? Or do I need to shift the interview to, to, you know, you know, hone in on a specific area? And that's kind of the notes to self. It's like, all right, I need to keep doing these interviews or going forward, I'm going to focus more on this specific area. And that's the kind of thing I would share out in like a little email summary. Right. So Leah, probably gradually moving towards one thing. And okay, with these interviews, you're probably honing on to a particular problem that you see most of these people are having. And perhaps your MVP, if you are just starting out or your new feature would be based on out of that only. Right. So Cindy, how would you advise like to get better at doing customer development interviews? Because it's tough. It's, it's, it's hard. And is it just by doing a lot of them? Or like, how do you proactively learn and understand like the mistakes that you're making and you work on those and get better at taking these customer development interviews. So that's the other advantage of a note taker is that person, it's more obvious to them what you're doing wrong. (laughs) So it's a little intimidating, right? But you might get off an interview and then your note taker is like, hey, when you ask this one question, the person kind of hesitated and they kind of went, and I think maybe you made them feel uncomfortable. Or they might say, you said, wouldn't you like blah, blah, blah. That's a really leading question. And if they can give you that feedback right afterwards, that helps you say, oh, like next time I'll reframe that. Uh, Sometimes they even can kind of give you a look while you're asking the question. And you're like, oh, that's a bad question. And I have often started to ask a leading question and then said, hold on, let me reframe that. And then paused for a moment and said, tell me about how you would um, or tell me about how you have, you know, and it's okay. You can do that on the fly. People do not expect this to be like a TED talk. Um, You can change up what you're asking you can say hold on let me reframe how i asked that question and it works out fine right uh, this stack team approach i've never heard of it but this seems very very interesting and like very productive because one person is sort of a evaluator and note taker and 
one more person is just actually asking the question nice awesome okay so just going a little back so you said you you started to seeing a pattern when you have taken enough interviews right so like what does a typical pattern look like uh, and how do you identify that and then what do you do with that basically with that pattern sure so you know i, I like to say this the pattern is when you ask a question and you can kind of predict what they're going to say um, and once you once you're at that point where you say you know tell me about how you you know blah 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 tell me about your biggest problem with deploying code and like you're thinking in your mind they're going to say automated testing and the person's like well oh. our test suite you're like all right i, I know this one um then I, then i might say okay i feel pretty strongly about this you know we of this set of customers this is their biggest pain point now how like how could we try to solve it like what do we know about how they work that tells us whether or not we know enough to have a solution because there's two steps there's there's kind of there's a step where you know something's a problem, like, okay, everyone's automated testing is terrible. But you might not know how to fix it because you might not know enough about the ways in which it's terrible or what tools they're using or the types of errors they get. And so you might need a more specific interview, which is, okay, now we need to figure out what are the types of problems. Or interviews might be less good at that point. You know, in some cases it might be, let's look at usage data because we know this is a problem. Let's look at our logs and see where are these problems occurring. Or let's go observe people and see what kind of errors they're getting and see how they're reacting. And then based on that, it's like, okay, you know, is the right solution something that's in their IDE? Is it something that's, you know, a package service? Is it something that happens at a process state? And then how could, how might we create something that solves it? And then there's usually kind of a discussion of, is the fastest thing a concierge MVP where maybe we send an engineer over to, to hover and help them resolve errors? And that's how we learn. And, and that's how we decide what would be automated. Or is it that, you know, we build a quick plugin and we ask people to try it out? Or is it we mock something up and we walk them through, you know, a demo and then get their feedback. And it's going to vary time by time. Right. Makes sense. Awesome. Cindy, like, have you seen any sort of difference when it comes to doing customer development interviews uh, in B2B versus direct consumer products? So like, I mean, obviously, you know, end of end user of the product is different in sort of B2B. So how, how does it differ when you're talking to the buyer of the product or the end user of the product and then whole B2B versus consumer tech products? Like, what are the different things that different distinctions that you see? So let's see. Uh, I think one of them is that for consumer products, I think people are less familiar with the notion of customer development interviews or more likely to be like, I, wait, I don't understand why you're asking me this. I, I don't know how this works. So there's more, there's more handholding you have to do to kind of explain the process. I think if you work in industry, you have been asked to do market research or a usability test or, or something in the past. So it's like, you know, the script and you kind of know what your role is to play and consumers tend to not. And so you need to explain a little bit more about this is how it works. This is what I'm going to ask you. This is how I'm going to use it. And you don't always have to do that up front, but through the course of the interview, you're doing more of that handholding. There's also, I think with consumers, it can be trickier to find out who the other stakeholders are. Because there are often other stakeholders, but in business, it's very clear. It's like, I need to convince the person who signs the checks or, you know, I need to convince my manager or, you know, this people who do security audits, like it's known who those gatekeepers are. So if you talk to me about tools and then you say, talk to me about like who has to approve it, I, I know that answer and there's no particular maybe social stigma in talking about it. Like there's nothing wrong with saying, oh, we have internal tools. Whereas if you're asking a consumer, 
their stakeholders might be their kids. It might be their spouse. It might be their friends. And it's a little bit weirder to ask people about decisions they might make because of social pressure. You know, there are a lot of people who do things because maybe their friends don't approve of it or think it's silly. And asking that question is really a little bit fraught. It's like, you know, tell me about a thing that you wish you could do, but you feel like your spouse disapproves. That sounds like, wait, are you saying I don't have a good relationship with my spouse? It's like, well, no, (laughs) we all know there are things that you might do differently. Right. And so that's much, much trickier. And I, 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 that requires a lot of kind of like roundabout story, like, well, tell me about a time in the past when this happened. But it's harder to ask directly. You can ask directly in business, like who else is blocking this? And, and you can't ask as much in consumer. That makes sense. Awesome. Awesome. So Cindy, that was pretty much it. Any final advice you'd give to startup founders and teams when it comes to customer development interviews? Just do them. You will be bad at first. It's okay. And you will get better. But Lots of people put this off as I don't have time. I'm not good at this yet. I'll do this when I have a chance. These can be really short. They don't have to be great, but it's if you build that in from the beginning and just give people this opportunity to say no, essentially, because the worst thing that happens is you pour your heart and soul into a product and it turns out people don't want it. So give people lots of opportunities to say, I don't care about that, because sometimes they will say, I do care about that. And that's where you should focus your energy. Yeah, perhaps your first interview would be worst, but like your 50th would be much better. Exactly. Even your fifth. <laughs> exactly. Any resource you'd suggest to listeners for learning about this books, people, blogs? Obviously me. Lean Customer Development by O'Reilly is my book. Talking about what to do after interviews. Some coworkers of mine have another fabulous book called The Customer Driven Playbook. And it talks more about how to take that information and synthesize it into your product decisions. And then for cognitive biases, everything around that area, there's a great blog and podcast, youarenotsosmart.com. And it's just this guy who goes through examples of cognitive bias and the impact on them. And it's, it's really lighthearted and fun. I recommend it. Awesome. Awesome. Anything you'd like to plug in your Twitter or LinkedIn, like if people want to reach out to you? I'm Cindy at CindyAlvarez.com. I love giving advice and answering questions. And I do private workshops for companies who are trying to get better at customer development. Awesome. Uh, Well, Cindy, uh, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun talking to you about this. It was a pleasure having you on the show. It was great being here. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Show notes would be available on the website insightsalley.com. Please rate, review, subscribe in whichever app you are listening to this episode. The podcast is available everywhere. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And even YouTube. And remember, always be learning. Bye.